I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Finally, the general speaks out. Ever since he resigned as Donald Trump's Secretary of Defense, James Mattis has been besieged with entreaties to tell what he knows and what he thinks about the erratic, blustery behavior of his former commander-in-chief. But Mattis held his tongue until this week when he issued a blistering rebuke of the president he once served. His breaking point were the protests over the death of George Floyd and the president's vow to use military force to contain them. Never did I dream that troops would be ordered under any circumstances to violate the constitutional rights of their fellow citizens, much less to provide a bizarre photo op for the elected commander-in-chief, with military leadership standing alongside, Mattis said. And then this, Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. It was an extraordinary statement that may have already given cover to some Republican senators to voice their misgivings about President Trump. But what prompted Mattis to break his vow of silence? We'll talk to his former top speechwriter, Guy Snodgrass, who is also the author of a book about Mattis' tenure as Secretary of Defense, and explore what his statement means for the military and the country on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. I think it's fair to say that a lot of people were blown away by Mattis's statement. Not just that he spoke out, although that was pretty extraordinary in and of itself, but those were amazingly stinging words that he says about his former boss, the president. And it's so out of keeping. Mattis is a, a Marine general, a guy who's respected chain of command all his life, has kept silent ever since he resigned at the end of 2018. But, you know, man, when he finally uh, chose to uh, go public, it was uh, more than I think anybody ever expected. He, he said he violated the Constitution. I mean, basically, yeah. he said that the president of the United States in going after protesters in the way that he did was a violation of the United States Constitution, the Constitution that all members of the military are sworn to uphold. And there have been many other retired generals who have spoken out against President Trump, but none had the weight of Jim Mattis, who uh, some Republican recently described as somewhere between Ronald Reagan and the Pope. So, so some circles, in some circles, right? (laughs) Not not all. 
But can I just say, what prompted this? Okay, Mattis is pointing to sending military troops to police the streets of American cities. And it is worth pointing out that like much else with Donald Trump, you know, there's a big talk, blustery talk. Trump has talked about invoking the Insurrection Act. He's talked about bringing in the military to, you know, to crack down. But let's be clear he hasn't actually done it. Yes, National Guard has been called out in Washington, D.C., but wait, 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 not active wait, duty wait, military. Wait, what, what, what happened on Monday? Yeah, it was horrendous. In front of the it White House. But, I it mean, was, but it wasn't active duty military so troops. So, like any— it was, So what? It, it, was, it was military troops They under the supervision of the president of the United States. They don't report to the chief executive of Washington, D.C., Unlike every other state where the governor, right. where they report to the governor in Washington, D.C., they report to the commander in chief. So he activated military troops to. No, 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 no. Wait, hold on. The, the disbursement of the protesters in Lafayette Square involved was guard as well. done by the park police and guard and other federal agencies and some National Guard. I, I'm just making the distinction between National Guard, which has been used in many instances, you know, almost every year to help with some national catastrophe or, of, uh, you know, right. hurricane or whatever. And, and historically and by Kennedy and by Johnson to right. uh, and historically by by Kennedy and Johnson and, and Eisenhower for uh, right. like the opposite purposes, which is to <laughs> well, say yes. to deal with you know racism in this country. So, yeah, look, what happened, as we have pointed out in the last show, was horrible and was clearly a, um, a violation of the rights of those protesters to peacefully demonstrate about something that is uh, is clearly uh, a case of blatant racist police brutality, no question about that. But I want to just broaden this to the point I was I made in the um, opening there that Mattis's statement is contagious. Um, you know, it may have come late. Others may have spoken first, like uh, Admiral Mullen, for instance, uh, the day before Mattis spoke out. But then you have no sooner does he do this than Lisa Murkowski goes public and says she's struggling with whether she can even whether she can even support President Trump for re-election. And then Charles Grassley, of all people, finally gets some spine on the inspector general issue, the firing of those IGs, saying he's going to hold up as chairman of the Senate Finance Committee appointments by the president unless he provides an explanation for his firing of inspectors general. So, I, you know, there may this may have been a moment in which the needle has moved as a result of Mattis yeah. speaking out. I, you know, I think we said the other day that this was a kind of a watershed moment in terms of this presidency. You put it in the context of other moments like this with uh, Hoover and uh, I can't yeah. remember the other the examples. Bonus, the, the bonus right, army the, the bonus. And, and daily and in Chicago convention, right. 1968. Um, and, and, and I think that's right. I think when people look back at this moment, you know, 20 years from now, it's going to loom large. But I also get the sense, as you're saying, that actually in the moment, it's having real impact. And also, you mentioned the, some of the generals, uh, General Allen, John Allen, right. uh, who's been on our podcast, also went after the president uh, in an op-ed piece in foreign policy. And just today, as we're 
recording this podcast on Friday, General uh, John Kelly, the president's uh, former chief of staff, who has criticized him since he's left office, but in fairly muted terms, came to the defense of Mattis for his statement. And I'll read you what he said. I think we need to look harder at who we elect. I think we should look at people that are running <laughs> yeah. for office and put them through the filter. What is their what is their character like? What are their ethics? I, you know, some people have said that that's a backhanded slap at Trump. I, I don't think there's anything <laughs> backhanded, backhanded about saying we have to be look harder at who we elect, i.e. we should not have elected Donald Trump. So that is from Donald Trump's former Homeland Security Secretary and his former Chief of Staff, the White House Chief of Staff under Donald Trump. So you have the former Chief of Staff, the former Secretary of Defense, both of them speaking out against the president they once served. I don't can't think of a precedent for this. Can you? That no, I mean not even not even not even the Nixon, not even team. Watergate, not even the Nixon era did cabinet secretaries or former cabinet secretaries, as far as I recall, break with him for all of the criminality. Yeah. That he engaged well, John in. Dean did, but uh, you know, he well, was John White Dean House was a, was White House <laughs> right. counsel, right? I mean, you right, know. yeah, but you know, at this level, people who were so close to a sitting president. Speaking out and denouncing him is pretty uh, extraordinary. Yeah, now we'll see. Um, have to see whether uh, whether this is sustained at all. And and today, uh, also as we record this podcast, the president got and the country got good news, which is uh, that the job numbers came out and unemployment actually went down by several points to a little more than thirteen percent. A little more than thirteen percent. The expectation among everyone was that it was going to be close to 20%, you know, kind of almost depression levels. And so, the, and as a result, the stock market kind of went through the roof. This is what been what Trump has been saying all along, that the there's all this pent-up energy. The economy was going to come roaring back. Um, a, we'll have to see if that's true. And B, we'll have to see if in the end that really is, you know, decisive politically. And uh, I, I'm not sure that anyone knows the answer to that. I'm going to make a bold prediction. Among those who will not break with the president and speak out against him is Attorney General William Barr. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think you're probably right about that. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know how bold that prediction is, but I, I, I think I hear your. I'll so take wagers I hear, if somebody I, wants to bet otherwise. I, I I'll, hear I'll the, give them. I'll see, give them a hundred to one. <laughs> on that. I, see, I hear yeah. the uh, the slight tone of sarcasm there. Um, you know, speaking of, of Barr, I did have a little bit of a kind of revelation about his involvement in all of this over the last couple of days, because I remembered one of the first stories I ever wrote about him. And, you know, we've talked on this podcast about how we've covered Bill Barr all the way back to when he was uh, assistant attorney general at the Justice Department in the late 80s. But in 1991, September 1991, he was the acting attorney general because Dick Thornburg had left to run for senator in, in Pennsylvania. And there was a, a hostage crisis uh, unfolding at a federal penitentiary in Talladega, Alabama. And so Barr, as the acting attorney general, was thrust into this very tense uh, situation. And he made the decision, along with people from the FBI and from other law enforcement agencies, to launch a pretty daring pre-dawn 
assault on this prison to rescue uh, the hostages. They were being held by Cuban inmates who didn't want to be sent back to Cuba. And this particular event uh, actually is probably why George H.W. Bush then picked him to be his attorney general and kind of set him on his uh, that uh, you know part of his career. I, I bring it up because I get the sense that Barr has always relished the sort of tactical part of his job. And it made me think that, you know, over the last few days in that that uh, clearing out of protesters on Monday maybe had something to do with that. And also, as we've, I think, talked before on this podcast, uh, back in 1968, when he was on uh, the campus of Columbia as an undergraduate student there, and the uh, the, the radical students took over Lowe's Library and the, the, uh, the president of the university's office. Bill Barr was on the other side of that, and what he wanted was for the university, the administration, to storm the building and take back the president's uh, president's office. So it got me thinking that these two kind of formative experiences in Bill Barr's life kind of came together in this moment in front of the White House. So here was an opportunity for him to use all of his uh, kind of tactical skills and that he'd learned over the course of his career to clear out the radicals and rabble-rousers in front of the seat of power in Washington, D.C., the White House. What do you think of that? What I think is that your little soliloquy there is a reminder that if nothing else on this podcast, we have long memories. <laughs> we are um, we are and, old. Uh, we are yeah, old. Yeah, we should we should probably just be farmed out to the History Channel at this point. <laughs> but uh, anyway, no, I I think that's that's an excellent point. I think that uh, Barr reliving his Columbia days uh, this past week and. Uh, uh, ordering those uh, the dispersal of those protesters uh, was probably a sort of visceral moment for him that he got to um, do what he always wanted done years ago. Anyway, before we go, uh, one other point we should bring up a really good story from our Yahoo colleague, uh, Jana Winter, who got a hold of internal Department of Homeland Security documents revealing what the Trump administration has refused to turn over to Congress, despite multiple demands, which is just who is guarding the national capital and other cities right now from what agencies, how many of them. And it turns out right here in D.C., the Trump uh, White House, under Bill Barr's direction as attorney general, has amassed a force of 1,300 from agencies across the government, the Secret Service, National Guard, Customs and Border Protection, Park Police, Border Patrol, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, TSA, um, Coast Guard, Federal Protective Service, and on the list goes virtually every federal law enforcement agency has been tapped to bring in and police the streets of Washington. And as we speak, there's scheduled to be a massive demonstration in Washington, D.C. this weekend, starting on Saturday. People are talking about as many as a million protesters. We'll see how many actually show up. But um, this could be uh, an ingredient for a clash between all those uh, federal in, uh, officers and the protesters. We'll see. We hope not, but uh, it's something we'll all be watching. And uh, we'll we'll have to see how 
the elite SWAT teams from the Border Patrol and sniper <laughs> sniper trained units from ICE deal yeah. with this. They are also part of this contingent of federal law enforcement and TSA's air marshals and the air marshals Viper teams, which I had never actually heard of, the VIPR teams. I don't know. It sounds cool. I don't know what a Viper team is. I don't know what VIPR stands for, but I do know it's pronounced Viper. Coast Guard. I thought Coast Guard patrolled the waters, but actually they're apparently at the White House as well. I will say, last thing on this is that this is information that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats have been trying to get. They wrote a letter to the White House about this on Thursday. You know, Muriel Bowser, the uh, mayor of Washington, D.C., has... uh, also tried to find this information out. They want to know who's there, what their mission is, what their authorities are, how they're supposed to interact together and with the Metropolitan Police Department. And they could not get any of these answers from uh, the uh, the Trump administration, uh, but they are now getting them from Yahoo News, thanks to the excellent reporting of Jana Winter. And thanks to my own Googling, I can tell you that uh, VIPER stands for Visible Intermodal Prevention and Response Team, and it's uh, organized by the TSA, so only on Skullduggery. Intermodal? Intermodal. I think intergalactic would have been better. (laughs) Yeah. All right. All right. Enough frivolity. We have serious matters to discuss, so let's get on with the show. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We now have with us retired Commander Guy Snodgrass, former Pentagon Director of Communications and Chief Speechwriter to then Secretary of Defense James Mattis, also the author of Holding the Line Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis. Commander Snodgrass, welcome to Skullduggery. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Great to be with you. So, quite a statement from your former boss this week that really has driven the entire conversation about what's going on. Former Secretary Mattis just unloading on the President of the United States. Were you surprised, and what did you make of it? So, yes, I would say I was surprised, actually. He, throughout his tenure, you know, for a year and a half, I would attend all the events with him. He he actually would give a course on a quarterly basis called Capstone. It's for all the rising one-star admirals and generals and all the new members of the senior executive service on the civilian side for the Department of Defense. And the one thing he was adamant about was that when you retire your uniform or when you retire from a very senior public position, you retire your tongue. And so I was frankly surprised not only that he spoke out in the way he did, but that he did so while going after current Secretary of Defense Mark Esper for his poor choice of words when he talked about dominating the battle space. So, Commander Snodgrass, why was this a breaking point for him? You know, it's interesting. When you look at his statement that was uh, released, he's using a lot of lofty nationwide, you know, uh, rhetoric. It's not, it's not specifically about the military, but I think that was the breaking point 
You had Admiral Mike Mullen, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's, of course, widely respected on both sides of the aisle, was the first one out the gate to release a statement saying that he deplored Trump's leadership and his use of military in a very politicized fashion because it risks the longstanding, you know, what's known as a civilian or civil military relationship. Uh, there's going to be a significant breach there when you see, you know, active duty U.S. troops being paraded down the street and forcibly putting down demonstrators or being put, seen as a position to do so. And frankly, I think there's an element of Mattis just didn't want to miss the boat. When he left the Trump administration, he made a big point to shape the perception of his departure by preparing in advance a statement. He releases that statement to help solidify that he was walking away from President Trump. He didn't want to give President Trump the decision space to claim that he had fired him, although that's happened since then. And so now you have this situation where Mattis is watching the U.S. military being used for incredibly political purposes. There's a lot of danger there, both domestically for the long-term relationship and confidence in the U.S. military, and I would say also internationally. It just looks a lot like an authoritarian government, and Mattis, that pulled him off the sideline. So, you know, you, as you detailed in your book, Mattis had had his frustrations with Trump for quite some time. I mean, he resigned at the end of 2018 over the um, president's decision to pull U.S. troops out of Syria and abandon the Kurds. But his problems with the president were longstanding, going back to that initial briefing at the Pentagon for the president, the uh, idea of using, of, of staging a grand military parade down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. You quote uh, Mattis as saying he would rather swallow acid than uh, uh, see such a parade. Tell us a bit about Mattis's frustrations over time with Trump and how he would process it. You bet. And as you mentioned, that is the entire arc of my book, right, was to capture the two-year relationship that existed from the moment that Vice President-elect Mike Pence had reached out to Mattis to invite him to Bedminster for the, uh, to interview as Secretary of Defense all the way through to his resignation and, and in between. I would tell you it was a fundamentally untenable position for Mattis from the time he accepted that interview. And Mattis himself has spoken about the fact that when he went to Bedminster and interviewed with Pence and with Trump, that on all three questions President Trump raised, they disagreed on every single point. So there was no mystery here for Mattis that when he took the job, that he was going to be working for a president where they disagreed on a lot of things. I would say you can break down his arc with the president basically into three phases. The first phase lasted about six months, maybe maybe closer to eight months, where President Trump was brand new to the job, new to government service, new to the U.S. military. And that gave Mattis and then National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster and others the opportunity to kind of shape and guide the president more actively than they could later on. So the president was more deferential. He was much more likely to meet with Mattis on a regular basis to to take his counsel, and he would act on his counsel. So Mattis could temper some of the president's more ad hoc instincts. So that gets you through the first eight months. After that, the president becomes much more confident in his position, confident as the president of the United States. He begins to He'll take Mattis's counsel, but he'll still go his own way and expect Mattis to simply carry out his directives. You mentioned the parade that President Trump long sought down Pennsylvania Avenue. 
you know, so that gets you through about another six month period. And then that for the remainder of Mattis's tenure, almost uh, probably the last eight months, you reached a very untenable point where Mattis was cut out of the loop. You then had John Bolton as the national security advisor who would keep Mattis out of the loop. They would not share information from the White House to the Department of Defense. So all the different elements that Mattis would normally have weighed in on had disappeared, which was incredibly frustrating to Mattis. Kept out of the loop on what you were about to Kept out of the loop on when when you had the summer of 2018 in June, when Trump goes to Singapore to have the you know, confab with Kim Jong-un of North Korea and then takes to the podium and says, forthwith, we will not be doing any large military exercises with our longstanding ally, South Korea. Surprised everybody. We had no advance notice of that, even though we claimed we did. We didn't have any advance notice of that. Same thing with creation of the Space Force. You had President Trump take to the podium, point at General Dunford, then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and said, we're creating a Space Force. You got it, General? And about five minutes after that press conference ended, you had then chief of staff for the president, General John Kelly, frantically dialing our office saying, hey, Mr. Secretary, they just he just ordered the creation of Space Force, right? So the president learned pretty quick if Mattis was going to slow him down, he'd just box Mattis out and publicly create policy that Mattis would then have to enact. Commander, I want to get back to this uh, this inflection point, this breaking point that you talked about before and why Secretary Mattis decided to loosen his tongue after he said he wouldn't do that, which is the politicization of the military, using the military in a domestic context. But there were moments during Mattis's term when President Trump got awfully close to that kind of conduct. And one of them was, I think, before the midterm elections, when he made the decision to deploy U.S. troops to the U.S.-Mexican border. What was Mattis's response to that? And did he think it was the kind of breach that we just saw at Lafayette uh, Square? Yeah, I think, you know, Trump has long talked about his love of the military. He loves his generals and his admirals. And I can see why. Having having worked in a pseudo-political position for Secretary Mattis in his front office, you know, you have a front row seat. And it's because when you're in the military, I mean, your entire career, Mattis was in for over 30 years, he had served all the way as a four-star Marine. And you may disagree with your boss, but you just carry out their orders. And I would say, too, his credit on some cases, Mattis would, uh, like he said with the parade, you know, he'd rather swallow acid, but he would still understand the importance of carrying out what the president had asked him to do. And frankly, he should. I mean, he'd been appointed by the president who was duly elected by the American public. So, you know, Mattis is an appointed person, not an elected individual. He, You know, if you can't reconcile your differences with your boss, then you need to leave. But I think if you'd had someone with better political skills, you know, you would realize that there's things you could do behind the scenes to maybe help shape the president's thinking better. So largely, you know, Mattis would be frustrated, but he was always the good soldier, even in private. He he would rarely, I can count on a number of times on two hands where he would either board the aircraft after a particularly contentious meeting overseas with something that the president had done, like an unannounced Twitter feed blast or something that would complicate his efforts at NATO or complicate his efforts in the Middle East, meaning complicate Mattis's to serve as the president's representative. Yet he would come on, he would kind of eye roll or he'd say something for about 10, 15 seconds about his displeasure. And then it was, okay, we got a job to do. Let's get it done. How would he express his displeasure? Uh, like I said, I mean, it, you know, he's he's such an amazingly controlled individual. He'll use invective. I mean, he'll be upset and frustrated. I've seen him throw some stuff before because of his uh, just sheer level of stress and frustration. But again, I mean, he you know, he's long been an adherent to stoicism. He believes in uh, trying to master control of yourself, 
realizing that, you know, you've got to take the world as it comes, not as you necessarily want it to be. And he's got a, such a depth of history and so much experience as a senior leader in the military that I think he realizes, like, I mean, taking out your frustration on your subordinates or acting petulant, it's not going to really get you anywhere. It's, it's You just have to roll up your sleeves, get to work and go. But how did he react to Trump's decision to deploy troops to the border? Was he in Did he support that? Did he just salute? Did he oppose it and salute? I mean, what was his reaction to that? Sure. So his reaction was one of, I think, you know, initially, because this if memory serves, it really came to a head kind of in the springtime, uh, like you mentioned, in advance of the midterms. So it was it, President Trump wanted to deploy active duty troops to the border. Mattis was swaying him towards using uh, members of the Guard or reserve so you could stay away from active duty. And, you know, Mattis was always such a well-founded, you know, he what's the rules, what's the regulation? He was very concerned, of course, about posse comitatus and the use of active duty troops for law enforcement purposes. We would have the representatives from the office of the, the attorneys for the Department of Defense who would come in on a routine basis to brief Mattis on what was legal, what was not. So he was trying, I mean, he wanted to I think what Mattis always did, and I thought for the most part he did a really nice job of this, was he understood the president's intent, but he sought to enact it in a way that was always legal, always ethical. If you had to break down how much of Mattis's frustrations were policy oriented, his disagreement with the president's wanting to pull out of uh, international treaties and, and agreements versus the sort of erratic behavior of the president personally and the, his failure to take in information, to uh, uh, listen to briefings, to listen to what subordinates had to say. H how would you um, navigate between those two matters? You know, I, I really don't think you can. They're so intertwined. Let's take, for example, the president's decision to deny transgender individuals the opportunity to serve in the military. So there, if you look at that at, from a policy standpoint, Mattis understood the president's intent and desire to take that path. But he also knew it was going to be incredibly contentious. It, was, it would definitely be challenged in the courts. So Mattis undertook a pathway to form a study, to use a data-intensive approach, basically something that would be defensible, or at least have a veneer of being defensible in front of the courts. And, and that's when you had those series of three tweets come out from the president, basically, while Mattis was on vacation, saying, here's what we're going to do, make it happen. And so so they're so intertwined. I mean, the president took a very impulsive reaction to to force what he wanted, but then at the same time, it's about policy. So it's hard to say that you can really separate one from the other. They're, they're so closely woven together. Commander Snodgrass, uh, we've been talking mostly about Mattis, but I'm curious, you spent your career in the military. How did you view what happened on Monday with the clearing of Lafayette Square, the use of not active duty, but National Guard military troops, the president's threat to uh, invoke the Insurre Insurrection Act. How do you view that? How worried should uh, the American people be about that kind of conduct by the president of the United States? And how do you think it's more widely viewed in the military, not just among the brass, but also among the rank and file? Yeah, you know, so, OK, personally, I think it was abhorrent. And the reason why is, so for 20 years of my career, I was a Navy fighter pilot, right? Uh, former Top Gun instructor. I, I focused on operations, on war fighting, and frankly, loved every minute of it. And so just by happenstance, I got pulled into a speechwriting job early in my career for the chief of naval operations. That's the senior uniform leader for the U.S. Navy. And because of that, that's how I was on Mattis's radar to get pulled in for him. So I had a chance throughout my career to spend about four years 
as a strategic communicator. And that's what I don't like about what I'm seeing with the president's decision making. You know, I think the president believes it's good for his base, and maybe it is, that he's being the, the president of law and order. The danger comes into account where 99% of Americans will not distinguish between active duty and guard. They will not distinguish between, they're not going to deep dive into what is posse comitatus or what is the Insurrection Act and all these very you know convoluted laws and regulations. What they're going to see is an optic of men and women in uniform with riot gear, guns, in some cases, assault rifles and sniper rifles on the streets of Washington, D.C., and they're going to immediately draw a just a very clear line from the military putting down civilians. And that's the, again, that's the crux of the matter for Mullen, for General John Allen, for, uh, I think it was General Dempsey as well had jumped into this. I mean, you've had a lot of senior leaders. So that gets to the second part of your question. What do the rank and file think? You know, I only retired recently within the last two years. A lot of my peers are now in their kind of, I guess you'd say, middle senior leadership, right? They're the Navy captains of the Army Marine Corps colonels, Air Force colonels, and, and one stars. They don't like what they're seeing because, again, it's putting them, it's pulling the military away from its apolitical, nonpartisan bedrock, and you're constantly thrusting it, like you said, the border wall, or you're thrusting it into issues of immigration, or you're thrusting it into issues of policing the streets, and you risk that longstanding trust and confidence with the American public. The military has been the most trusted institution in America since the 70s, and you could easily evaporate that. And we've seen other longstanding institutions have their credibility eroded, like the FBI, like law enforcement, during President Trump's tenure. And so you can say you like or dislike the president's policies, but I do think that the way you get there is incredibly important. So one of the most controversial aspects of the events on Monday in terms of the optics was Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, in full battle fatigue, and Secretary of Defense Mark Esper participating in that photo op in front of uh, St. John's Episcopal Church. So my question to you is, what if Jim Mattis had been Secretary of Defense at the time and had been there with President Trump and Trump had said, come on, let's go over to the church? What would he have done? You know, it's such a challenging question because I think the honest, the intellectually honest response is, it depends. The way that Esper and Milley have both stated this went down is that they were in a meeting with the president. He basically says, hey, let's let's go. We're going across the street. And hey, it's your commander in chief. And so it wasn't, let's go across the street for a photo op with the Bible. We're going to use military or police force to clear demonstrators to do it. So there's so much context that has to go into what happened at the moment. You know, Mattis, sometimes he runs the risk if he's a little bit of a paper tiger. He'll, he'll come out with an amazing statement or he'll he'll hold up these lofty ideals. But there are plenty of times during his own tenure where he would you know, back down and be very subservient to the president that he worked for. And and again, I think this is something historians are going to chew over for a long period of time, which is you've got a camp that says Mattis should have been more vocal in his dissent. And you've got a camp that says Mattis, as the appointed secretary of defense, should have just carried out whatever President Trump wanted him to do. Obviously, the truth is somewhere in the middle. You know, he fed the idea that he should have spoken out earlier in that statement because, I mean, you know, in the most remarkable paragraph, you know, he talks about how Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people. We are witnessing the consequences of three years without mature leadership. So he was there for, you know, two of those years of serving a president without serving an administration without mature leadership. That only begs the question, why didn't you say something earlier? You know, and again, I think Mattis is like anybody. I mean, he's a complicated individual. 
you can't take anything away from the fact that he's dedicated the vast majority of his adult life to America. He served in uniform for decades. It was only out of uniform for around three years when he was asked by President-elect Trump to come in as his secretary of defense. When you say yes to a job like that, you say yes because you believe altruistically you can make a difference. You also say yes because you're very ambitious and you want an opportunity to, to jump back on the national stage and hopefully make a positive impact. And I think that that underpins a lot of what Mattis does. Yes, there's always an altruistic aspect. He has one of the most carefully manicured public personas of anybody I've ever met or worked for. Most leaders say, I'm going to I'm gonna lead and I'm going to let the chips fall where they made. Mattis was always making decisions with an eye towards his legacy. How will this reflect on me five years down the road, 10 years down the road? That's why he carefully... Uh, he carefully positioned his departure from the administration. He'd met with General John Kelly months before, and they'd both come to the agreement when Mattis was going to depart and how he was going to do it. And the fact that Mattis would leave first and then Kelly would leave second so that Kelly could hold down the fort at the White House. But, you know, the way Mattis presents it to the public is that it was a spur of the moment decision because of the president's decision to withdraw from Syria. But that's not the truth. So, you know, you guys have been around long, long enough. There's there's always the what's going on behind closed doors. And then there's what you present to the public to help shape the narrative in the way that's most advantageous, either for the country, for the individual, for the institution. Well, one of the narratives is that some of the generals that did stay in stayed in because at a certain point they realized that it was important for them to protect the country or protect the military from this president. Maybe that was a rationalization. Maybe it's real. Was this ever anything you heard Secretary Mattis talk about? It's a great question. And I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to think back if there's ever any overt. I, I can't recall that. I can't recall Mattis speaking so freely in front of his staff that he would say, I'm only here because I'm trying to protect the military from the president. I don't think he viewed the job that way, but it's much like any time. I mean, we've all been in this kind of a position just at different levels of society, right? I mean, it could be a, it could be a private company. You've got a boss who likes to make hasty decisions. You're a more thoughtful and deliberate middle manager. And you realize, hey, boss, what you're about to do I understand your intent, but the way you want to do it is going to harm our employees. It's going to harm the company long term. Here's what if we do it this way that still gets to your desired intent, but it also preserves the relationship with our employees and means that the company not only will will survive, will thrive as we move into the future. That's what all these individuals are doing. And I think the most recent example has been, of course, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci with coronavirus. People were decrying the fact that they've been re remaining silent, that, that they didn't speak out more more forcefully against the president's advocacy for hydroxychloroquine and other solutions that people thought might be kind of kooky. But again, I, I heard uh, Fauci and I've also heard other doctors speak openly about the fact that you have to weigh constantly, can you do greater good for the country by remaining in your position of authority and helping to guide and shape the outcome? Or do you throw up your arms and protest, resign, and have someone who's much more willing to kowtow to the president of the United States in that position, and what does that outcome possibly look like? And I, and I think it's tough. It's a challenging decision. You've got to make that each and every day. Did you ever hear anybody in Mattis's presence talk about invoking the 25th Amendment to remove the president from office? Did you ever hear talk of it at all in the Pentagon? You know, that's a great question. Um, the Pentagon is such a large organization. It's like any, you know, I mean, it's scuttlebutt. People talk. Uh, I don't ever recall someone having a serious conversation about we've hit a red line where someone might need to re remove the president. I do remember, though, of course, like the military is drawn from the uh, civilians 
society, right? So we're, we all come from very various political backgrounds, various places around the country. You know, and I remember hearing uh, a couple times people lamenting if they leaned Republican, l- lamenting that, man, I mean, if Vice President Pence were the one who kind of assumed the presidency, then I think the Republican Party would be saved is, is kind of what I heard people talking mm-hmm. about. But, but well, that's, not from a, that's not from an official. I don't want your listeners to believe that that's some kind of a, a military uh conversation point. And I, in fact, I got to be careful here because I had an interview with a Japanese newspaper yesterday. And you, again, the perspective of them looking from the outside in towards America. And one of the questions was, is there a danger of a military coup? And I found myself going, wow, um, one, absolutely not nowhere close to that. But the fact that you would even think that kind of shows you just how perilous the situation had become in the eyes of the international community. Well, let me ask uh, another like another spin on that, since we're entertaining doomsday scenarios here. Uh, we had a guest on our podcast, Manita Gupta, the former head of the Justice Department Civil Rights Division um, last week. She's part of a group that is looking at all sorts of apocalyptic scenarios with the election coming up. And one of them is that the president disputes the results of the election and refuses to cede power until, you know, it's resolved in whatever way that is. And this is something that she said uh, they are actively talking about, considering that possibility. I don't know if you believe that that is something that could happen, but I'm curious, in a situation like that, what would the military do? I mean, if the president has gone beyond his constitutional authority and held on to power, what happens? Great question. I think Americans of all flavors and stripes should be completely secure in the knowledge that there is absolutely zero chance of a military coup. Military members are incredibly well-disciplined. They're trained. You know, this would be something that would absolutely be handled by the courts. It would be handled from another another process using the Constitution and applicable laws as a guideline. The military would stay as far away from this as possible solely for the reason I've already mentioned, that it's so important to maintain that civil-military relationship, that norm. There's zero chance the military would get involved in this. So, Commander Snodgrass, after all of this, and after this statement, that this remarkable statement that Secretary Mattis put out, what do you think his legacy is going to be? And, will, and to what extent will it be affected by that? Personally, professionally, I, could, I agree with a lot of what Secretary Mattis put in his letter. Personally, I think that Mattis is looking for ways to continue to bolster or salvage his legacy. He did so with his with his resignation letter regarding Syria. He wanted to show that there was a fundamental divide with what he believes and what the president believes to maybe you know diminish the fact that he'd been on in the administration for 2 years. He's a very Mattis is a very savvy political operator. There's no getting around it, you know, especially for a guy who'd worn a uniform and had not been in pure politics for a majority of his adult life. So you know, what it's going to mean for his legacy remains to be seen. I, I've been surprised, frankly, because I was a huge Mattis believer. That's why I accepted the offer to come work for him. You know, and I've been surprised at the number of people since he's departed who weren't as pleased with Mattis as, as I thought they'd be. Uh, because I thought Mattis did a really nice job with keeping the ship, meaning the Pentagon ship, on a steady course, getting the budget restored for two years, getting the national defense strategy put out. I mean, he, he handled a lot of really contentious issues, and I thought did so in a very nice way that kept the military out of a lot of the political fray. But I think, again, that's a that's a distinction that gets lost on a lot of the rank and file wearing uniforms or civilians within the department. And while they appreciate Mattis and his and his uh, efforts, they realize that, uh, you know, he's now departed and and largely in the past. Well, always difficult to predict people's legacies in, in real time. I guess we'll have to wait for the judgment of history. But your insights are uh, incredibly valuable. So thank you so much, uh, 
Commander Snodgrass, for coming out to the podcast today. Yeah, Dan, Mike, thanks for uh, the invitation. Great to talk with you. Thanks to Guy Snodgrass, speechwriter and chief of communications, to former Secretary of Defense James Mattis for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.